The coronavirus outbreak is sweeping the country. Well, actually, the world. And at the same time, we still have an election going on. The primary seems to be all but settled, and now we start moving on to what the general election is going to look like. In what is something of a catch-all episode, today we are going to focus on both the impact of the coronavirus in the short, medium, and long term, and what the general election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden is likely to look like. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. podcast listeners, and welcome to another thrilling episode of the Blind Politics Podcast. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government from Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of Regent University or of the Robertson School of Government. I want to start things off a little bit different. I'm sure, as many of you may have guessed from listening to our recent podcast on uh, my visit to the America-Israel Public Affairs Committee. And if you've been following the news, you probably know that there was some exposure to APAC attendees uh, to the coronavirus. There were two attendees who tested positive. There were a few others who subsequently tested positive after the conference. First of all, I am fine. As of right now, it has been... I'm recording this on Friday afternoon. This will be coming out on Tuesday. And as of right now, it's been just about 10 days I'm completely asymptomatic. Well, of course, from what we're reading right now, that may or may not mean that I'm a carrier of this thing. Well, I, I would suspect not. But I'm completely asymptomatic. I'm fine. Everybody around me seems to be fine. And so the likelihood that I was exposed to this is pretty slim. My university has asked me to go on a 14-day self-isolation and, and to avoid campus for 14 days, which I've done. And, you know, honestly, compared to some of what other universities are doing right now, that's a pretty measured and proportionate response. You know, there, there was a, a slight, infinitesimally slight, I would say, but slight chance of exposure. And so as a result of that, they've asked me to go into self-isolation for two weeks, which I've done. I'm trying to get a test kit so I can, I can tell you a little bit about that. Where I am right now in Virginia Beach, it's, it's very difficult to do because, number one, I am a healthy, young individual who is at fairly low risk from this thing. And number two, again, the, the possibility of exposure seems like it's pretty incidental. I did not ever go into any of the big general session rooms at APAC. I avoided a bunch of the sort of bigger gatherings. I mostly was going to breakout sessions and side events at APAC when I was there. So that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, we're just not sure how much and how far this spreads. Our info on coronavirus probably changes by the hour, if not by the day. In fact, as you're listening to this, you probably have more information about coronavirus right now than I do, especially if you're checking accurate and reputable sources. So that's that's the status of this right now. You know, I do appreciate everybody who's reached out and, and asked. There have been a couple statements in local news here about a person at Regent who went to APAC. Those of you who listen to this podcast already know that was me. And so I would say, as of right now, it does not appear as though I got it. Anybody that was in contact with uh, has it, any anything like that. But Regents being careful, and you know, I would say compared to the instant and, and dra fairly draconian responses by some other universities, I think Regents being fairly reasonable and measured about the whole thing. So 
let's start by talking about coronavirus, and then we're going to sort of awkwardly transition into electoral politics because we've got two big stories going on right now. One is, of course, the coronavirus is shutting things down at a rapid and accelerating rate. And the other is, of course, the fact that it now seems all but inevitable that we're going to have a general election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And we haven't really spent a lot of time sort of delving into what that is going to look like and the contours of that. So let me talk about coronavirus first. Coronavirus has now been declared a pandemic. And there's, I think, the, the most consistent variable right now about the coronavirus is uncertainty. We know a lot less than anybody who is telling you things definitively recognizes. In other words, I would say there are more unknowns right now than knowns. So we know what the symptoms are. We know what the highest risk categories are, okay? So we know the symptoms of this thing are cough, fever, respiratory issues, shortness of breath, etc. If you've got those symptoms, you want to get checked out. So that, that's what we know. We know that the people who are at highest risk are the, the elderly, so those who are 80 plus, and or those who have underlying health conditions, particularly upper respiratory conditions. So if you're in a category that falls into both of those, you definitely want to be very, very careful with this thing. Outside of those two risk groups, mortality from it seems to be fairly low. That is kind of a good news, bad news situation. Good news in the sense that obviously anytime you have something like this that is leaving most groups of the population unaffected, that's a positive. Bad news in the sense that because of that, it's much more transmissible because what they're saying right now is that some people that could be completely asymptomatic could actually be carriers of this thing. You could, you could have it and sort of not know because you're not affected in any sort of meaningful way on that. You know, we're looking at a very volatile situation and a situation in which there, there probably are a significant, albeit unknown, number of undiagnosed cases. But keep in mind, the reason that there are that many cases is because this thing can be not very severe at all. It can be fairly mild symptoms, if anything. And so because of that, a lot of people are probably not, may have it that are not being diagnosed with it. Why is everything shutting down? Because essentially they're trying to slow or stop the outbreak. Now, let's talk about those two things separately. Slowing the outbreak. This would essentially mean you are trying to prevent coronavirus from spreading as quickly and the reason that you would try to spread it out is to prevent the healthcare system from being overloaded, to give the healthcare system time to ramp up test production, to essentially try to prevent this thing from spreading out as rapidly so that our systems don't get overloaded, because our systems are really not designed for an epidemic. And so that is one aspect. The other thing is if you can isolate pockets of it, prevent it from spreading, it seems to be somewhere in the 14 to 21 day window for something like this, if there's a pocket of it to burn itself out. If you can isolate those pockets of, of areas where there's a heavy concentration of the disease and it sort of you know burns out and it's gone, in theory, that means that you have stopped the spread, right? So it's, it's kind of a containment strategy with the hope that you can also have certain areas that are going to be cordoned off and sort of cleared. What that means is that you have the, the social distancing. And this is, you know, they're advising everybody, of course, to stay six feet away and also take normal precautions that, frankly, we should be taking all the time. Cover your hand, cover your mouth when you're sneezing or coughing. Wash your hands regularly for at least 20 seconds. Use alcohol-based sanitizers on your hands. This is normal 
precautionary stuff that everybody, frankly, should be doing all the time. You keep your hands clean. You prevent just about everything bad <laughs> from happening in terms of medical stuff is diminished or ameliorated if you wash your hands. This goes back way back in history. One of the things that was the biggest problem with the bubonic plague, with every other pandemic that's happened in the past, is bad hygiene practices. Good hygiene won't necessarily prevent you from getting the coronavirus, but it decreases the risk of coronavirus plus every other disease that you could possibly get significantly. So wash your hands, folks. You know, those types of things I think are, are pretty normal. And so because of the social distancing, a lot of mass events, things where there are going to be thousands of people grouped together, are advisable for at least the next little while. How long that's going to last really depends on how fast and how far this thing progresses. So that's what we know in terms of the disease. Here's what we don't know. Can you get reinfected? We're not entirely sure. Some say yes, some say no. How long does this thing last on surfaces? You've, you've seen a lot of different conflicting pieces of information about that. How much of the population is susceptible to essentially being asymptomatic carriers of this. We really don't know that either. Okay, so there are a lot of unknowns. So as you're seeing a lot of confusion and chaos and things like that coming out of the CDC, coming out of people with government, etc., just keep in mind that this is a new thing, this is a new disease, and nobody really knows the fullness of this. And yes, in some ways that is a little bit frightening, right? That is the thing that's scaring the markets that's scaring people that is causing the most anxiety about coronavirus right now is the sheer level of uncertainty. This is not something that is going to be a bubonic plague. This, is, this may or may not be something that is 1918 Spanish influenza levels of death rate. I'm a little bit skeptical that it's going to be that high. Now, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm just a political scientist who studies a lot of history. And historically, the fact that as of right now, it seems as though the pool of people that are at the most risk from this is a smaller subset of the population, that to me indicates that there's a pretty real possibility that when all is said and done, if we were able to get an accurate count of everybody that actually had this thing, the death rate is probably going to be lower than what we saw from 1918 Spanish influenza. I mean, that's a pretty high bar, but that's kind of what I'm suspecting. The other thing is varying public health responses are going to get you very different outcomes. I want to talk about the political aspect of this in terms of, of short-term versus the economic aspect. Now, short-term politics. I think there are two legitimate criticisms of the Trump administration right now. One is that they probably could have and should have done more to aggressively ramp up the production of test kits as soon as they decided that they were going to start responding to the coronavirus with the travel ban on China. If you take it seriously enough that you're going to try to ban Chinese nationals from coming into the country, then you should probably take it seriously enough to set aside some money and start really trying to ramp up that domestic production of test kits and prioritize that. I get the fact that the administration was trying to calm everybody down and prevent the economic freakout that essentially we're having right now. That is not an unreasonable thing to do. That is not the kind of thing that you look at it and say, oh, you know, that's, that's so terrible. Because again, at that point, you don't really know very much what's coming down the pike. And so if everybody freaks out and panics and we have an economic downturn and then things aren't as bad, then you, know, you have, have created a crisis where there didn't need to be one. However, I think that the economic negative economic impacts of really trying to ramp up that test production early would have been non-existent and i think it would have put us in a, in hindsight would have put us in a much better position than we are now the second thing is that you know this is really a time when you are in communication when you are a, a president when you are a, a, in leadership 
where a disciplined, focused communication strategy becomes important. It's one thing to have your team stay on message. It's another thing for you to stay on message. And Trump has not done a particularly good job. Part of that means you just, you cannot tweet. You cannot be tweeting out things about this that come across your thought, you know, synapses and just drop that into the atmosphere and see what happens, right? Now is a really bad time to be an undisciplined communicator. And Trump is an undisciplined communicator. And whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing in normal politics, I happen to think it's a bad thing. Because most of the sharp barbs that he launches could be part of a more focused disciplined communication strategy. Whereas the Twitter thing, you you know, the more undisciplined you are in any aspect of life, the more you own st- you you end up you know with own goals and stepping on your own foot. So that th- those are two areas where I'd say it's it's fair to say these are aspects of what the Trump administration has done that has not worked very well. Beyond that, it's really hard to say because. There are a couple things to keep in mind. Number one, as Admiral Balcom said in our, our crisis podcast earlier, anytime you have a government response to something like this, the government is going to make mistakes. I don't care if it's a Republican administration, a Democratic administration, it doesn't matter. There are always mistakes in a crisis. Inevitably, governments are going to do things that when you look at the review, you say, okay, we shouldn't have done that. Okay, we should have done this differently, right? That's point number one. Point number two, it is actually important for us to be able to have a bipartisan group of experts when this thing is finalized, when we see, you know, when all is said and done at the end of this, and we don't know when that's going to be yet, but when once that happens, it's going to be very important for a bipartisan group of experts to calmly, rationally sit down and break down what worked well and what didn't. The problem is that everything right now is so partisan that that information may or may not happen. That information, first of all, wouldn't penetrate. And second of all, my concern is that there may not even be that kind of review because everyone's going to be interested in politicizing it. Trump is going to want to politicize it to talk about how great and perfect his response was and how no one could have done it better. And the Democrats are going to want to talk about how it was a horrible disaster. And, you know, had it not been for the heroic efforts of Speaker Pelosi, we would have all been, you know, digging half-eaten sandwiches out of trash cans, right? Th- that's just the moment that we're in. And that's a really bad moment for us to be in in terms of a crisis, right? So think about the 9-11 Commission report. It's a report that came out several years after 9-11. And it was trying to investigate what the government did right, what the government did wrong. It was bipartisan. There was a lot of controversy around it. But ultimately, it came out with some recommendations about how to improve things moving forward. And that is the most important thing from a government perspective, okay? The government's going to make mistakes. Some of them may be Trump's fault. Some of them may be Pence's fault. Some of them may be somebody else's fault. But that actually, honestly, that does not matter. Okay, that is completely unimportant. What is important is figuring out what those mistakes are so that we can not repeat them if slash when we have another situation like this. The most important thing that you can have when you're facing a crisis is the ability to learn lessons from it and apply those lessons to future crises so that you don't make those mistakes again. Okay, this is a basic competence issue. It shouldn't really matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. We should be able to figure out what worked, what didn't, and apply those lessons in the future for something like this. You know, there's not a, a red state or a blue state coronavirus. There's, you know, there's not a Republican or a Democratic pandemic. This is the kind of thing where it really shouldn't matter the jersey that the person who is the president happens to be wearing, right? And, you know, it's not that Trump is responsible or Democrats are responsible. Both sides are responsible. We're in a toxic, polarized political environment. And so it's going to be very hard for us to get that assessment. But everybody really needs to take the partisan glasses off right now because a pandemic doesn't really care 
what your policy is, what your preferences are, how you self-identify on the political spectrum, right? It's going to be what it's going to be. And the nuts and bolts of responding to this kind of thing, again, shouldn't really matter your partisan affiliation. Now, I realize that this is completely optimistic and that everyone is going to be running around with a chick, like a chicken with their head cut off, validating their priors and pouring heaping piles of confirmation bias on whatever comes out after this crisis, right? And so we're going to be living in completely different universes about the coronavirus. That's really bad. And this is the kind of event that should highlight to most Americans why polarization is dangerous. Because if we have so little public trust in people that we don't agree with about politics, that we are either just not listening to what they have to say, or you know, we're going to ignore what the government is saying, we're going to ignore what experts are saying, or we're immediately rushing to politicize. We're immediately looking at something like this and saying, how can we gain from this politically? And look, I expect that sort of thing from politicians, because that sort of is in the job description. But when the voters are immediately thinking about what's the implication of this going to be for partisan politics, not, oh gosh, you know, how do we keep grandma from getting this disease? Then we have a problem because politicians will respond to the incentives that we, the voters, create. And if we create an incentive that expects competence and that expects people to be able to pull together and fix things like this, then that's what politicians are going to prioritize. I was having a conversation with someone earlier today and they, you know, the, the question was asked, why after 9-11 were people able to pull together? Why did Congress sort of, you know, pull behind Bush in a way that they seemingly are not with Trump? And I would say it's, it's two things. One, Trump himself. Bush was a much more focused, much more disciplined leader. He had a tendency to try to want to pull people together because that was the style that he used when he was governor of Texas. You know, it's hard to remember that now because everything sort of got interpreted through the lens of the Iraq war later. But he was somebody who was trying to unite the country. Not ultimately all that successfully, but those were his instincts. Trump is the opposite, right? So that's one aspect of this. But the other is the Democratic leadership has changed. Okay, who were the leaders of the House and the Senate at the time? Dick Gephardt and Tom Daschle. Gephardt from Missouri, great state of Missouri, and Daschle from South Dakota, right? And so when you start looking at this, what did you have? You had Democratic leadership that was from red or swing states. In other words, the people that were in leadership in the minority party in the House and the majority party in the Senate, all right, the opposition party to the president, were from districts or states that were carried by that president in the last election. Nancy Pelosi, by contrast, is from possibly the least Trumpy congressional district in the entire United States, a district that is essentially uh, the heart of San Francisco, right? So the incentive structures are different. It's not that Gephardt and Daschle are better people than Nancy Pelosi. It's that as politicians, their incentive structures are different. Gephardt and Daschle's incentive structure was, we really can't jump on the president in a time of crisis because we're both from states where he's kind of popular. So we need to pull together. Nancy Pelosi's constituents will probably be more angry with her if she worked with Trump because they think that Trump is worse than the coronavirus. Okay, they probably think Trump is worse than bubonic plague, <laughs> right? So the incentive structures are different because the leadership is different, because Congress is more sorted. We are in a much more toxic and polarized environment. And so the constituencies have changed. The expectations have changed. And politicians respond to expectations. Politics 
is downstream from culture. That's something that you hear a lot in Christian circles, and you hear it a lot in sort of just in general. Politics is downstream from culture. But politicians are downstream from political attitudes. They're going to be responsive to the mood in the country. You get the government you vote for. And that is just the reality of the moment that we're in. So that is where we stand in terms of the politics of this. Now, from an economic perspective, what can we say? I think we can say that second quarter is going to take, uh, the economy is going to take a huge bath. It's not going to be good at all. Consumer spending is going to be way down. Certain industries are going to hit, be hit very, very hard. We should expect that. We should expect that there's going to be recession from this. You know, is some of that perhaps because of the low, the, the testing response and, and, you know, the fact that we weren't able to get this thing under control? Yeah, maybe. But on the other hand, some of it's completely out of control of the United States because we live in a global economy. And even if the United States responded perfectly and had a textbook sort of South Korea type response and situation, if other countries don't respond that effectively, guess what? your economy is still going to be negatively affected. Okay, so global recession is likely from this. The question is how deep and how profound it is. And I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that. So just within the United States, I think the next two, three weeks are going to be critical because we'll start to get more of a sense of how far and fast this thing has spread. We will hopefully get, you know, testing. I would expect that test kit production is probably going to increase exponentially just because anytime you start making something, the more that you make, the, the better at it you get, the, the more efficient you get, the faster you get. And so eventually we'll hit a point where the test kits get very widely distributed and we'll start to be able to get a real profile on how widespread this thing is and what the death rate actually looks like and what the risk actually looks like. We're still in a very, very early stage in terms of our level of knowledge about the coronavirus. So it's not at all clear what the ultimate outcome of this is going to be. Okay, if it turns out that, in fact, death rates are going to be pretty low, which is what I think, just based on what we're seeing right now, we're, we're going to see, I, I suspect, you know, just from a, a sampling perspective, sam- and anytime you're, you're looking at a statistic, right, and the death rate is a statistic, the first thing you have to look at is sampling error. All right, so are you oversampling or undersampling a specific group? I suspect that because the people that are being tested for this skew toward those who are at highest risk, right? I can tell you for a fact that if you're at a low risk of having serious long-term health consequences right now, it's hard to get tested. I can tell you this based on my own experience, right? So we probably have some sampling error. And if we have sampling error, it is almost certainly skewing toward the death rate, the projected death rate being higher than it will in fact be once we're able to get a more reasonable um, sense of this whole thing. So that is an important component to keep in mind. Right now, that I would say is the most likely series of outcomes. If you were going to ask me to place money on the question of will the death rate ultimately be higher, lower, or about the same as what estimates right now are projecting, I would I would probably lean very heavily toward lower just because the people who are asymptomatic carriers of this thing or who are having minor symptoms of of coronavirus but aren't really showing any serious symptoms are much, much less likely to be tested in the first place. So they're not even in the sample. And so, you know, that's something to, to watch moving forward. If that ends up being the case, do we keep the really strict quarantine procedures in place or do we ultimately not? How long does it take to come out with some sort of vaccine? Can you have a vaccine that's going to be particularly effective, that's going to protect 
people who are in those high-risk categories. I, you know, all of that is unknown at this point. And, and those are the factors that are really going to determine how this thing goes. The other, the other thing is, you know, if you have a, a longer-term quarantine and it looks like people that are in that sort of normal healthy pools, the pools of people under the age of 80 and the pools of people who that don't have upper respiratory symptoms, do we get to a point where people just, you know, the, the pressure ramps up sufficiently that people want to remove some of those stricter restrictions? That's a possibility. And again, we, we don't really know 100% how any of that's going to shake out. So my best guess is, and this is entirely guess, like I said, I don't know, actually know any more than, than anybody else. My guess, best guess is that by the 1st of April, we have a much better handle on this thing and, and, and on what the impact of coronavirus is going to be moving forward than we do right now. Right now, we probably know more than we did two, three weeks ago. And you know, hopefully, we actually are able to get something definitive in terms of an understanding of, of what the profile of this disease looks like sort of by that Easter timeframe. That's, that's the hope. That would be my guess. But again, you know, there's, there are a lot of things that we just don't know. So I'm going to take a quick break here. And when I come back from that, we will discuss the upcoming election and some thoughts on what the Joe Biden... You know what? Actually, here's what we're going to do. This podcast is already right around 27 and a half minutes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually split this in half. We will release this podcast, which is just sort of coronavirus 2.0 focused. And then we'll release a second podcast that is going to focus on the Trump-Biden election. And we'll release that later in the week. So a couple of updates, and I will give you guys more information about this as we get closer. One thing is that I'm going to be doing a webinar type event. This was something that's supposed to be an on-campus event, but you know, due to current restrictions, we're looking at moving a bunch of stuff online. And so on March 31st, I'm going to be doing what is an annual event at Regent. That is our politics and science fiction event. This year, it's called God and Governing the Galaxy. I'm going to look at sort of the theological worldview ideas behind several sort of high concept sci-fi series. And in terms of their, how those worldviews impact their view of what future governance would look like. So that's going to be a fun event. Uh, we'll talk a little Star Trek. We'll talk a little Dune. We'll talk about maybe some Babylon 5 and maybe a couple of other of these big sort of future-oriented space opera-esque sci-fi universes and their sort of vision of the future and of what governance looks like in that type of environment. So if you're interested in that, as we get closer, check our social media platforms and we will be putting out information about how you can attend that. And my hope is that we can also record it and upload it as a podcast for those of you who are not able to make that event. That is going to be March 31st. So that's about it for right now, just in terms of upcoming events and upcoming things to uh, watch out for. That podcast on the sort of Trump-Biden general election is going to, in all likelihood, drop later this week. Unless, of course, things dramatically change because of the coronavirus. You know, who knows what kind of election we ultimately will get when all is said and done. But I would still say that's the most likely, and it's worth kind of gaming out what that's going to look like. So that podcast will drop a little bit later on this week just because we ended up going a little bit longer on the coronavirus stuff, which I think is appropriate given how much it has swallowed the news cycle. So with all that being said, that is a wrap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Tell all of your friends, tell your coworkers, tell everyone who you are now WhatsApping and uh, G-chatting and whatever the kids are doing these days in terms of you know Snapchat or whatever, because you can't get out of your house because you're um, in self-quarantine. 
Tell your kids who are home from school, from high school or college, who are moping around the house because they have nothing else to do and you just want them to listen to something that might be slightly educational and stop playing video games for a minute. Tell all of those people to rate and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. And remember that you can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics, Instagram at Blind Politics, and Twitter at Blind, P-O-L-N-O-L-T-E. That is Blind Paul Nolte. And so that being said, for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. Music